This is Laura London, and you're listening to Speaking of Young. Before I introduce this month's guest, I would like to mention that we have been on hiatus since the release of episode 119 on March 1st, 2023. We return today, May 25th, 2023, with an audio-only edition. I created Speaking of Jung in 2015 as a traditional audio podcast and only began recording video in January of 2022 to celebrate our 100th episode. Due to some recent life upheaval, to my fellow astrologers out there, I have a Sun-Venus conjunction in mid-Taurus in my eighth house, and transiting Uranus and Taurus has not spared me a bit. I will be returning Speaking of Jung to its original format as an audio podcast. Each episode is available to stream or download for free, commercial free, from our website, speakingofjung.com, and outside of my control, it gets picked up by podcast distributors such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Amazon Music. I also upload each episode to our YouTube channel, Jungian Laura. The ads that YouTube includes are also outside of my control, but I would appreciate you subscribing to our channel. It's free and it helps a lot. I intend to return to the usual one episode per month schedule. On this episode, I'll be joined by Jungian analyst Lori Leighton Shapira to discuss her book, The Cassandra Complex, recently reissued by Inner City Books. In June, I'll be joined by Jungian analyst Dr. Polly Young-Eisendrath to celebrate the reissue of her first book, Hags and Heroes, also from Inner City Books. And in July, Jungian analyst Murray Stein will return to discuss the highly anticipated new book written by all seven members of BTS. It's titled Beyond the Story a 10-year record of BTS, and it will be released on July 9th, 2023. Please use the link in the schedule section on the front page of speakingofyoung.com for 40% off the pre-order price. We will also be discussing the soon-to-be-released Volume 7 of the Collected Writings of Murray Stein on the problem of evil. If you'd like to help keep Speaking of Young alive please visit our support page at speakingofyoung.com support, where you will find links to donate, shop worldwide on Amazon, and purchase access to online video courses from the Young Society of Washington and Soul at Play. I cannot continue this podcast without your support. And now, here's this month's episode. This is Laura London. And you're listening to Speaking of Jung. Joining us today for episode 120 is Jungian analyst and filmmaker Lori Leighton Shapira in Brooklyn, New York. She earned a Master of Science in Psychiatric Mental Health Nursing from the University of Pennsylvania and worked in private practice for many years as a clinical specialist. Her training as a Jungian analyst was with the C.G. Jung Institute of New York, which was completed in 1987. She became a member of their faculty and has been serving on their board of directors and as head of admissions since the 1990s and served as president of the board from 2011 to 2014. Lori is also director of the Jung Institute's Introduction to Jungian Clinical Process launched in the fall of 2019. The program functions as a prerequisite for individuals without mental health credentials who wish to apply to the training program in Jungian psychoanalysis. Her book, The Cassandra Complex, Living with Disbelief, A Modern Perspective on Hysteria, was published by Inner City Books in 1988 and has been reissued just this year. Since its publication, Lori has lectured worldwide and appeared on television and radio discussing the subjects of feminine psychology and Greek and Norse mythology. In 1993, she founded Cassandra Productions, writing, directing, editing, and producing a variety of films, including the narrative The Prophecy of the Cirrus, available on Amazon's Prime Video, and the award-winning Women in China, up against the wall, 
named Best Documentary at the New York Film and Video Festival in 1997. Upon the release of The Red Book in 2009, Lori participated in the Rubin Museum's Red Book Dialogues, which paired individuals from different walks of life with a psychoanalyst to take the stage for a freewheeling discussion. A link to photos from her dialogue with documentary filmmaker Albert Maisels can be found in the show notes. Lori is a member of the New York Association for Analytical Psychology, the National Association for the Advancement of Psychoanalysis, and New York Women in Film and Television. Her life's work has been focused on lifting the patriarchal curse on feminine intuition so that the modern Cassandra can be believed. Please visit our website, speakingofyoung.com, where you will find links to everything discussed in this episode in the show notes. This interview is being recorded on Wednesday, May 24th, 2023, through the magic of Zoom. Hi, Lori. Hi, Laura. Nice to be with you. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. We are here because your book, The Cassandra Complex, which I've had in my library for years and years and years, has just been reissued by Inner City Books. Right. I would like to start by asking you the process that you went through in getting this book published, why you wrote it, and then we'll delve right into who Cassandra is. Sounds good. Then we're going back a ways. Yeah. Uh, Originally, the book was my graduation thesis from the Jung Institute of New York. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, when I, when it was finished, I sent it off to inner city books who were publishing Jungian analysts and um, Daryl took it. So that was how uh, the Cassandra complex um, living with this belief came into being. And uh, that was back, oh, geez, in the 80s, mm-hmm. maybe 1988. Had you known Daryl at the time? No, uh, but um, I w- uh, somebody recommended uh, that I publish the um, the work. And so Daryl was one of the, Inner City was one of the, the publishing houses that I actually was the first, the first one I sent to because it was, seemed like the obvious. Yeah. Yeah. So and, I, I guess he liked it. I, I you know, I don't yeah. remember. That was a long time, time ago. Well, he must have liked it because from what I hear, he did not publish everything that he was sent. Okay. Yeah. So this was your thesis uh, from your training at the Jung Institute of New York, and it is titled The Cassandra Complex. So let's begin with who was Cassandra? Okay, um, mythologically, I mean, maybe I can also tell you how I, how the idea started. Yeah while I was in training, um, because um, at the Jung Institute of New York, we, there, are, there are two phases of the training. Um, and once you pass your mid, mid-training exam, then you start thinking about your thesis. And so somewhere during that period of time, two of my patients, dreamt about Cassandra. Mm. And I didn't know much about that mythological figure, but I looked it up and started researching that the image, the archetypal image, and worked on, it was sort of longitudinally worked on these two cases to see if there was anything in common psychologically between these two women 
And um, I found that they were both hysterics, diagnosable hysterics. Mm -hmm. And so that sort of was the beginning of my of my research. And, and I discovered soon after that I had very much the same kind of psychology as these two women. So not only was I following their cases, but I was following my own case, mm-hmm. which was very helpful yeah. from the inside out. Yeah. Um, and so it, it took, it took a couple of years, really, for the whole process to unfold. And the writing, the writing began. So what did you uncover about the mythological Cassandra? Okay, well, I, you know, that was, that was the easy part, really, Mm, because, you know, who is Cassandra, you look it up in graves or, you know, mythographers. And Cassandra um, was a figure from the um, the Trojan War. Um, she was the daughter of Priam and Hecuba, who were the king and queen of Troy. And th- there are several stories that tell how she got her um, capacity to to see and know things um, related to Apollo, who saw her and liked her and he had a propensity for seeing and liking girls and um so he gave her the gift of prophecy but then she had second thoughts about about her part of the bargain uh, which apollo exacted from his conquests and um and so she reneged on her promise to sleep with him. And so he cursed her so that her prophecies would not be believed. And, and that's the, the Cassandra archetype is um, the, the intuition, medial intuition that goes unbelieved. Your book is titled The Cassandra Complex. So how did you get the idea uh, to use Cassandra to name this complex after her? I mean, so we should probably, for some of the listeners that might not be familiar with the Jungian concept of the complex, would you briefly tell us what a complex is? Okay, briefly. Um, Okay, so... You know, a complex happens, forms, when there's an archetype that then accrues psychic material around it. It's That's sort of the way um, psyche fleshes out, is there's a potential, an archetypal potential, a sort of archetypal meaning this sort of universal um, potential that we are all born with. And then our experiences, our personal experiences um, create complexes around the archetype. It sort of fleshes out the archetype. Um, so, for example, we're all born with a mother archetype potential in us, and our experience of our mothers, our personal mothers, will um, create the, the uh, through our experiences of our mothers, we will experience the mother archetype, and it can be very positive or very negative or some combination. Um, Well, okay, so there's a potential in us for medial intuition. And depending on our experience of that archetype, we will have an experience of that archetype. And in our culture, which does not value medial intuition, um, it 
it's often a very negative experience. And that's why we call it a complex because the, the experience that accrues around the, the archetype creates a, a, a complex in our psyche that is a, a pattern that, that we, each of us, will live out in our lives unless we are able to kind of unravel mm-hmm. the experience around the archetype. Well, I'd like to jump in here because you've used the word medial a few times and it runs throughout the book. And I actually was not familiar with that term, medial. So what does that mean exactly? It it has to do with mediumship. Okay. It has to do with being porous to information that comes through uh, our our really feelings um, are can be body different things for different people, but um, medial intuition is has to do with being able to um, get information from the world through our pores in a way, mm, not okay. not through the thinking function or the sensation function. Mm-hmm. So it's knowing, it's knowing things me, uh, like a medium does. Mm-hmm. Now, do you differentiate between being psychic and being intuitive? Well, being psychic is very close to medi- being medially intuitive. Okay. So you don't really, there's really no differentiation between the two. It's pretty much one in the same I would say so yeah Mm -hmm. and this whereas whereas, uh, intuition tends to have a kind of airy quality to it Mm -hmm. whereas uh, psychism or medial intuition it often comes through the body Mm -hmm. or the emotions Mm -hmm. so now how does Cassandra fit in it's the myth of her her story, right? Her her experience with Apollo and her her tragedy. And so the book opens with the myth and tragedy of Cassandra mm-hmm. and Cassandra's wounds. Mm-hmm. Hysteria comes into play here. And something I just want to add uh, that I found interesting is that you mentioned that hysteria still exists today. Uh, and Freud's treatment of hysteria is still practiced today. Is that still the case? I'm not sure exactly what you're asking. Are you asking if hysteria exists today? Yeah, we don't hear that word a lot anymore. Right. Um, mm Yeah. It became, you know, hysteria, the study of hysteria was really the beginning of the School of Psychoanalysis. Mm -hmm. It was um, Freud's study and some of his colleagues studying this phenomenon in women. Now, does it look the same now? Do do hysterics look the same now than they did uh, 150 years ago? No. Mm-hmm. No, it takes different forms through history, um, which I delineate in the book. Mm-hmm. I track hysteria through actually the 2,000 years of um, 4,000 years of the patriarchal era. And it, 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 I would say it is a patriarchal phenomenon because what I, what I found was that it really has much to do with, with this medial intuition that is not that is afflicted, that is not um, healthy in, um, in, in the feminine, in women. Because it's not um, valued in our culture. It's not valued, it's actually repressed. Yes. And so it comes out in, in different forms through history, but certainly hysteria was the way that it it became known to to our culture 
back in the 1800s. Um, and, uh, you know, these hysterical women screaming and yelling and flailing their arms and that. We don't see that anymore. I mean, occasionally we might. Sure. Um, but mostly it's more has to do with a kind of um, expressiveness that it has to do with um, n- with women describing their own experience, but in a way that is not logical. Mm-hmm. And so the culture still does not really appreciate that. They tend, the culture still tends to not believe women who express themselves in a certain emotional way. Right. I had a question on Twitter when I was uh, tweeting about this book and you being my next guest. And Ty Sinclair asks, my question is, how did Cassandra become Karen? Are you familiar with that term, Karen? That's okay. Yes. Um, well, maybe, you know, Karen in, is in, in our culture, um, a form of it. Although my experience, I mean, I'm not really sure who Karen is. I think she's sort of like the valley girl. Am I wrong? Karen is the angry, maybe middle-aged, typically white female who rages in public at the slightest inconvenience. Uh, If her McDonald's order, she ordered uh, large fries, but she was, she opened her bag when she got in her car and it's a small fry. (laughs) She becomes enraged and storms back into the McDonald's and just demands to see the manager. That's a Karen. Hmm. I don't know that I would call her hysterical. Okay. She, I mean, she's expressing angry emotions. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying this is what's out there, you know, the, in yeah. the collective. Well, I'm thinking of a, of a, of a different example. Um, how about, you know, like in, in our very recent past, how about this, the whole um, E. Jean Carroll um, trial? Okay, I'm not familiar. Tell us. This is this is the woman who accused Donald Trump of raping her. Ah. Um, and it, the trial came up a few weeks ago, and it's still still on the news in the news cycle. Is she acting in a hysterical manner? Not at all. Not at all. Okay. Is but, she being? But accused? is nonetheless being accused of being crazy. Hmm. So let's get to the bottom of that. What's going on there? You mentioned repression Mm -hmm. and the patriarchy. How did we get here? This repression of the feminine kind of oozing out as hysterical behavior and being ridiculed and condemned for it. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, and I mean, the reason why I brought up E. Jean Carroll is because she is not obliging mm-hmm. the patri- patriarchy by behaving in a hysterical manner. She's just, it's sort of like the Me Too movement. So I do see change since I wrote the book mm-hmm. uh, 40, 30, whatever years ago. I, I believe that the feminine is is coming into its own, even though there's, um, you know, there the the patriarchy is kicking and screaming mm-hmm. to hold on to its power. Um, but um, if, if to respond to your question of how did how did it happen way back when? Yeah, I'm interested in the history of Cassandra hysteria and where we are today. Yeah. Um, you know, it, the first recorded um, description or diagnosis was during the, in, in ancient uh, Egypt, um, and it was actually diagnosed as a problem of the 
the, uh, the womb called the wandering womb, mm-hmm. um, which is an effect, you know, it's a metaphor, but um, it, that's, that's where we got the, the word hysteria. Actually in Greek times, it's a Greek root. Um, hysteria is the womb. So it's, it was seen as a, a disease of women. And that is, it, it, cor- it, it corresponds to the same time in history when the patriarchy uh, took over and began to denigrate, let's mm-hmm. say, yeah. uh, feminine experience, feminine values. And so right there you get this material that's being uh, suppressed, repressed. Like you said, it's going to kind of ooze out in various um, symptoms. Um, and so going, uh, going through the history of it, I mean, that takes up quite a bit of the book. Yes. Um, talking about the, the, the ways that depending on the the cult the prevailing culture whatever is being repressed is going to um come out in in negative and unconscious ways Mm -hmm. and it's still happening today yeah because um even though i believe things are the feminine is coming into its own there's still there's still a lot of patriarchal um, uh, suppression mm-hmm. of the feminine. I mean, look at you know, look at the news. It's incredible. Let's talk about what's happening here in Jungian terms mm-hmm. with the Cassandra complex, with the Cassandra woman. How would you describe this in Jungian terms as far as the animus identified ego being split off and the negative mother complex? Yeah. Um, So um, when I was tracking these patients who were, who had dreamt of Cassandra, Mm -hmm. and I found this component, this hysterical component, and so I began to describe the complex, the dynamics in the psyche of a woman who um, has a Cassandra complex. I mean, you know, this we you often find a woman who is has done okay in 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 their life uh, right. in school. Um, they've developed a kind of a, a um, an animus that um, can get can get along in the world, but then what happens is that if there is some influx of unconscious material, either something happens that the woman cannot process. Um, or some feelings come up that overwhelm her, she falls apart. Mm-hmm. And um, that's when you see the what might be described as hysteria. She'll talk about her experience in a way that the patriarchal mind doesn't understand it, doesn't even understand what she's yeah. talking about. Mm-hmm. Because it's it's um, there. It's usually highly emotional and actually intuitive. She's experiencing things that perhaps are not apparent on the surface of things, mm. or that perhaps haven't even happened or manifest yet. So she's fallen. She falls into the complex at that point mm-hmm. she falls into that that feminine unconscious place and so really the goal is to be able for her to develop the consciousness so that she can have her experience 
so that she can even believe her own experience and she can articulate it to the world. And so women who are medial, who, who embody this, this undeveloped medial intuition, or maybe it, it is developed, you say that they learn to hide it or use it to shape shift. What are the consequences of that? Well, I mean, I would say that it starts off unconscious. Okay. If, if she's already aware of it and she's hiding it. Yeah. She's already um, uh, halfway there. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes it, it's better to, ha- to just, you know, keep it to yourself until the right moment. So that you will be believed. Um, it, it, the re- you know, the other half of the book, besides the history, is a description of the process of the, this material becoming more conscious. Mm-hmm. So that at the end of the process, if there's such a thing as the end of the process, right. one, the, the woman does believe her, intu- her intuition. She's not overwhelmed by yeah. um, the, the experience anymore. She, she's developed an ego that can hold and process what she's experiencing mm-hmm. and even be able to speak about it. This component of not being believed by the culture, the environment, the people around right. you, right? That's kind of a, a consequence of society. But if we believe ourselves, we don't need them to believe us. Right. And the acting yeah, out. I mean, mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Um, that's 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 the, the crucial component that the woman herself believes what she's experiencing. Mm-hmm. Now, it w- it's, you know, the icing on the cake is if the world can believe what she's saying because because the world can benefit yeah. from her knowledge, her wisdom. I, just as an aside, I find it very interesting. Uh, you, you discuss Apollo and Artemis in this book, and NASA has named their missions where we're actually going back to the moon. It's been over 50 years now since an American has landed and walked on the moon. The new missions that they're preparing for, um, this th- these will be four individuals. The Apollo missions were three individuals. They were all men. Now the first woman to land and walk on the moon has already been named, and these are the Artemis missions. So we have uh-huh. Apollo and now Artemis. So I keep yeah. seeing, because I follow NASA pretty closely, I keep seeing that name, and she's out there now. Yeah, yeah, that's that's great. I mean, I, I, I that there's meaning to that, isn't yeah, there? Yeah, yeah. Going back to the complex and the negative mother complex, how does specifically the negative mother complex figure into Cassandra? Well, um, you know, the, the, the negative mother complex, met, uh constellated again at the time when the patriarchy uh, came into its power um, because the feminine became negativized. Mm -hmm. And so all of us, I mean, all of us born prior to probably 2000, um, we're all, we all have negative mother complexes because the, because the feminine has been denigrated and um, depotentiated. Mm. And so the feminine manifests in a rather negative way. Um, And so the process that I delineate has to do primarily, well, first of all, there's a regression back to the pre, the pre, um, 
pre-patriarchal era. Mm -hmm. And there has to be a repair of the relationship to the feminine, a relationship to the to the good mother. Yeah. Or a good mother to the the great mother, let's call her that. Mm-hmm. Um and so that's what has to be repaired is the relationship to the feminine. And do you see that today? Are you I do. Mm-hmm. I mean I think the example that you just that you just gave of the 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 these new um, the the new NASA um, missions called called Artemis. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that is a real. There's really meaning to that, and I do see, I do see a, a change, but I also see a a very strong patriarchal backlash mm. that is doing its best to. Um, to destroy, um, you know. I mean, I, I really can't help but bring politics into it. Um, you know, fifty years ago, um, we got Roe v. Wade so that women didn't have to die in back streets, and now here we are, back in the you know back in the bad old days again, or an, an attempt at being made. I think there's a huge conflict between the patriarchy the old patriarchy and uh, i don't know what to call the new it's not it's not matriarchy again okay it's um probably we could call it aquarian the aquarian age Mm -hmm. where there is an equality um in the in the um opposites the um, opposites working together rather than against each other, because the patriarchy was rather negative to the feminine, but probably the matriarchy was rather negative to the masculine. Right. Prior to the patriarchal takeover, so I would like to think that we're we're moving toward, and we're talking millennia here. Yeah. Yeah, I was wondering if this was cyclical, uh, cyclical, cyclical, the matriarchy, patriarchy, back to matriarchy, then back to patriarchy, if these are compensations, no? No, I I don't think it's it's cyclical in that way. I think this is something new that's happening. Okay, would you say more about that? Um... Yeah. Um, I mean, now you're, you know, uh, you're hitting me in my own, not Cassandra complex, but my own intuition about things. Okay. I have my own thoughts and feelings, but um, I don't see us moving toward matriarchy, although it may feel that way to the patriarchy, Mm. because they have a lot to lose. Mm Mm-hmm. They have been in power for 4,000 years, mm. and they're losing it, and it, 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 they're not happy about it. Mm-hmm. So they would, you know, they would attack the, 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 the feminine is coming, is, is coming up, no question. But it doesn't have to be at the expense right. of, of the masculine. Right. Yeah, they don't know that though. They don't know that, and they're they're afraid. But God forbid they should say, "I'm afraid." Yeah, because that would not be patriarchal value. Not allowed to be afraid of women. <laughs> right. Um, I mean, women are afraid of men, and men are afraid of women. But can we like can we get over it and like get on with it? And and with an attitude of you've got something to teach me, I've got something to teach you. And if we work together, wow, what a concept. You mentioned that Cassandra was a prophetess, a seer. And when I was reading the introduction, I mentioned your production company, 
mm-hmm. uh, Cassandra Productions, and you made a film, you wrote it, you directed it, you produced it. The title is The Prophecy of the Seeress. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Seeress, yeah. S-E-E-R-E-S-S. Yeah. You had mentioned to me that you were teaching Norse mythology at the Jung Institute every few years. And at first, there was very little written on that subject. But recently, there has been quite an explosion of interest, uh, various books and films and video games. So when you were asked to teach it again, uh, you decided to make a film based on the epic poem called... Boluspau. There's a candle company with that name. And as soon as I saw it, I thought of them. They've named the candles after this. And I, I, I always said Voluspa. So it is correct, Voluspa. Well, it's, it's actually, I mean, it, the, the um, Icelandic pronunciation and Isla- the Icelandic language is very close to Old Norse. Mm-hmm. And the way they pronounce it, I, I I shot the film in Iceland, so I spent a lot of time there. And the way that they they pronounce it, Voluspau. Okay. Why I don't know, but that's just the way they pronounce mm-hmm. it. Voluspau. Mm-hmm. So tell us about the film. Okay. Um, yeah, I've been involved in filmmaking since the nineties. And I was working, I I just really got into, I just loved the whole process. Mm -hmm. And it was not unrelated to to my work as a Jungian. I mean, you're working with imagery. Right. That's really what filmmaking is, is, is the image is telling you the story often. In contrast to a book where it's all the words, it's, um, working with a film, you're working with pictures and music. And um, so it's the story isn't just being told through the logos word, it's being told through the image, which, and I love that because that's very feminine. Mm -hmm. And um, so I started just working on other people's films. And then I made my first film, which was, um, I went to the women's conference, the UN women's conference in Beijing in 1995. And I decided to buy myself a little camera and just document the whole thing. And when I I came back with about 16 hours of footage and I, I made my first film, my own first film. And then um, I and made- that's, I just want to jump in. And that's women in China up against the wall, right? That's right. Okay. That's right. And and so and so you can you can see there's a pattern here mm-hmm. <laughs> of what my life has been about. Um, and so then I've been teaching Norse mythology at the institute really since the 1990s, and I was recruited for that by the then president of the board. Uh, Marga Speicher, who was a, a woman, a, a, a originally, she was born in Germany. And she, I had just graduated a few years before, and I was asking if I could maybe teach a course in astrology or something like that. And she called me and she said, I want you to teach Norse mythology. Mm. And I said, Marga, why? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And she said, because you love Wagner. Mm. And that was true. She knew that. Mm-hmm. And so I said, well, okay, I'll give it a try. I wasn't too happy about it. But I I did, I, I taught it for the first time and sort of struggled my way through. And there was no, there were no books, there was nothing. Mm. There was some of that original source material, you know, the poetic and prose eddas were published, but there, there was there was nothing. And so I was doing my, I was looking for books mm-hmm. and um, I actually got contacted by some white supremacist groups. Oh. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, that's interesting. Yeah. 
and um, because they they like that the symbolism, oh, okay. uh, the Nazi symbolism, and um, which which comes from the the Nordic runes. Mm. And I thought, I mean, that really got me thinking about this material. Okay. And, and how how does it manifest in our culture now at the time at the time that was really uh there was not there wasn't much manifestation of the material at the time and i thought well i wonder what that's you know what that's about and i developed a thesis over the years i i was i taught it maybe every 4 or 5 years um, and uh, as as new groups of students would come in, that would be one of the courses that they would be taking. And I developed a thesis as I was working on this material that our culture, Western civilization, is really more Nordic than perhaps even Greek, Greco-Roman. Okay. All right. And um, because and but and I I figured that the reason that it was not that that was not known was because of the negativity of World War II of the Nazis mm -hmm. and that so when I would say, say that to people they would get very defensive and pissed actually pissed off sure. how dare you think of our democracy as um, as uh, Nordic, Viking, mm -hmm. but as the years went on, it was more and more and more clear to me, and now crystal clear over the forty years that I've been teaching the material. Okay. It's it's so clear to me, mm -hmm. and um, so um, when I was asked to teach again the next cycle and i guess we're going back to probably 2008 9 something like that and i was asked by the then chair of the curriculum committee if i would be ready to teach again and i just blurted out and i said yes and i'm going to make a film oh and so very cassandra <laughs> so it's like who said that you right. know and and I thought about what I said because I believe what I I believe my blurts mm -hmm. now mm -hmm. after all these years, and um, I chose the this Edda this uh, epic poem Voluspau, um, and I decided I was going to make to make a film about that. Now the Voluspau is the first poem in the in the poetic edda which is a compilation of of myths and sagas from the old norse and voluspau means the prophecy of the seeress and and the uh the seeress was a very important figure in norse mythology there were two families in North Norse mythology. There's the 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 feminine family and the the more uh, the sky gods. Okay. The, the, sort of, the feminine family were were more the fertility uh, gods and goddesses, Freya and Fro, her brother, and some others. And the um, the sky gods were Odin and Thor and uh, the rest of the gang. And so the 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 um, the seeress comes from the 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 feminine side of the fam uh, the feminine family, and she and the she is the narrator of that of the Voluspal, and she actually tells the story of the creation and destruction of the world mm -hmm. called Ragnarok. She tells the whole story in about 20 pages. And it's absolutely gorgeous. That poem is, she's amazing. Her voice comes through loud and clear. I always, every time I taught it, every time I read it, I felt like she was speaking to us. 
She was telling us what our world was all about and, um, and speaking in a very personal way. I just love that piece. And I thought, what a magnificent film that could be. And so I did, I went to Iceland and, and uh, did pre-production there. And we did our, we did our production there. It was fantastic. I loved working with the Icelanders. They're fantastic people. Mm -hmm. And it was a great, it was a great experience. And I now, I still use, I've taught that the class at probably another three times since I made the film. And I use the film as the linchpin for the, the course because mm -hmm. it tells the whole arc of Norse mythology. Mm. And that film, The Prophecy of the Cirrus, is available on Amazon's Prime Video. There will be a link to it in the show notes for this episode, episode 120 at speakingofyoung.com. Great. Your other film that you mentioned, Women in China Up Against the Wall, I believe that is also available on a website. Chip Taylor Communications. Yeah, I, I, you know, frankly, I'm not sure whether I haven't spoken to him since COVID, and I hope, I hope Chip's still with us. You know, you never know. Yes, I, I did find the page, but there was no link for purchase. So uh, I will oh. look, look into that and then uh, add a note in the show notes for this episode. You know, I, I can tell, say one interesting thing about that film. Yeah. Um, a few years ago, um, and that what that film is really attracts the feminine throughout Chinese history uh, from the 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 mythological through what's going on in China today. Mm. Um, and um, that was an amazing experience as well. And about four years ago, we were approached, the Institute was approached by a group of, uh, by a Chinese doctor um, in mainland China um, who is teaching Jungian psychology. Okay. And she was bringing her class, her group, to America to learn about more about Jung. And she asked us if we would do a program for, for her students. And we, we agreed, and several of us uh, did a presentation, and I actually showed the film, mm. which at the time, Chip had had it translated into... Mandarin. Oh, nice. You know, like subtitles in yeah. Mandarin. And the reaction from the students was remarkable. Mm. There were several of them that came up afterward crying. Oh, wow. That they had never seen the footage on the Tiananmen Square. Oh, they massacre. hadn't seen it. No, it's it's not. They can't. Oh, I hadn't thought of that. Hmm. And so um, that was an amazing experience. Uh, it must have been. I think I saw a photo. Was there a photo of that group on yes, the website? Yes, on the website of the Institute. Yeah, we left it on there because we really liked that photograph. Okay, I'll find a link to that and add that as well. So you mentioned, uh, and I mentioned in the introduction, that you are quite involved with the New York Jung Institute. And I'd like for you to tell us a little bit about uh, the program that you're a director of, because I get asked questions a lot about how to become a Jungian analyst, where to train to become a Jungian analyst, what is involved, what are the prerequisites. And the C.G. Jung Institute of New York offers two educational programs, the training program in Jungian psychoanalysis, which is what you completed, and then the right. introduction to Jungian clinical process. Yes. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure, sure. I mean, I'm, I'm involved. I'm on the board of the, 
of the Institute of the training program. Mm -hmm. And I've been doing admissions there for longer than I would want to admit. Okay. Uh -huh. um, but um, several years ago, well, you know, New York State, I'm sorry, are, do you live in, you don't live in New York State. No, I'm in Chicago. You're in Chicago. I love Chicago. Um, yeah. Um, so New York State um, created um, a, a pathway to be licensed as a um, psychoanalyst. Okay. Um, unfortunately, it really is only in New York State. There's because I don't think there's any other states that have an LP. Um, so it, it, the the so that licensure enable it, it actually provides a pathway for people who do not have a degree in a mental health field who are not licensed as a, as a social worker or as a, um, a psychologist or psychiatrist or something like that. Um, you need to have a master's degree and you need to have some Jungian analysis. And, there, and we have developed a program, a year-long program for people who do not have um, a master's in a mental health field, but have a master's in some field. And they it provides this introductory um, program, provides um, four courses, two in the spring and two in, two in the fall and two in the spring, um, developmental psych, Jungian basics, psychopathology, and um, the principles of the therapeutic relationship are the courses that are offered. And once somebody ha takes that, that program, and after 100 hours of Jungian analysis, they can actually um, apply to the Jung Institute on the non-matriculated track, um, and then they're guided through to become matriculated students. Um, now we started this program four years ago. Mm -hmm. We have just it attracted such incredibly interesting people. Oh wow, that's great! Um, we're really happy with that, um, and um, so that that there's the problem with it is that you you are you can really only practice in New York State. Okay, because you. Because you don't have a a license that could be reciprocal. I mean, I see the other students, the students who apply as matriculated students, have a degree and a license, and they can they can be from outside New York State, right? As long as they're licensed in the state where they're where they practice. Okay. And so their LP, they can they can practice Jungian analysis outside of New York State, but uh, without without a degree, you really have to you really have to be practicing in the within the New York State. Okay, and I will include links uh, to what you're discussing in the show notes. Uh, if anyone's interested, if anyone's uh, in New York and is interested in uh, looking into the details of that program. Um, I'll ha have further information on the website. Mm -hmm. And there is also, there was something else about the New York uh, Jung Institute. Yes, you have a referral service for individuals who are seeking reduced fee Jungian psychoanalytic psychotherapy. Yes. And that's not something that I think is very well known. And I want to do a better job of linking to that, your referral service. Yes. That, that, that link can go right to the website. There's a page um, on the referral service. Yeah, um, the, the, our students get their clinical experience um, in the referral service clinic. Okay. So we do offer lower fee mm -hmm. um, 
like you said, psychoanalytic, Jungian psychoanalytic psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's, great. it's a wonderful um, service for the community. Before you entered the training program, you had a master's degree in nursing, but it was a master of science in nursing. Yeah, I was, I had a, a nursing license and I had a master's in psychiatric mental health nursing from the University of Pennsylvania. And that enabled me to practice as a psychotherapist. I had a private practice and then got the requisite number of hours of of Jungian analysis um, and was able to, I applied to the Jung Institute and I was accepted at the Jung Institute. Um, I mean, my interest in Jung, um, the, the, my first contact with, with Jung was in the 1960s mm. when his, um, his autobiography, Memories, Dreams, and Reflections, was kind of underground literature oh, was in, it? during the 60s. And I read Jung, and I just thought Jung was amazing. And so then, um, years later, when I went into nursing and then continued uh, to pursue psychiatric nursing, and I was lucky enough, excuse me, to have um, a professor who was interested, I think she may have been a psychoanalyst, but a Freudian, but she was very interested in Jung and she put Jung on our on our bibliographies and i just i started reading the jungian books and i i knew immediately Mm. this that was my that was my man Mm -hmm. and uh (laughs) that's great so did you have it in the back of your mind that you wanted to go on to become a jungian analyst yes but it didn't occur to me until i was well into the my master's my graduate school when i saw i found out actually i read an article by a woman named gertrude ujali and it said in her blurb that she was training to become a jungian analyst mm-hmm. and i thought oh my god you could become a jungian analyst. <laughs> uh-huh and so I called, I called the Jung Institute the, at the time, and I told the woman, I said, I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm a blah, 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 and I'm interested in becoming a Jungian analyst. And she said, well, how many hours of Jungian analysis do you have? And I said, oh, you, you need Jungian analysis? You know, and I could just hear her eyes rolling up in her head, another dopey person, <laughs> to, to, not knowing anything about anything. But... I just, I just felt it, you know, Yeah, I wanted it. And uh, I thought that was, that was my path. I was, I just knew that was my path. So that was the beginning. That's great. And that was uh, 50 years ago. Mm. And you're still at it. That's great. Well, I'm, I'm really glad that the book is, basically, it's back in print inner city books when Daryl passed away, just had a little bit of a lull, it never went away. But Mm -hmm. they're bringing back some of the books that kind of, I guess they ran out of. And so Mm -hmm. they needed to be reprinted. And I have had your book for many years. And when Scott Milligan mentioned to me when I saw him in Toronto a few months ago, that that was one of the books that was coming back, I got so excited and and wanted to talk to you. I appreciate your um, doing this for the Jungian world. Please look for Lori's book, The Cassandra Complex, Living with Disbelief, A Modern Perspective on Hysteria. It is currently available from Inner City Books. I believe it will soon be available on Amazon, and they are also coming out with an ebook version very soon. Thank you again, Lori. Thank you, Laura. Please visit our website, speakingofjung.com, for more information on everything discussed in this episode. There you will also find all of the previous episodes of this podcast, 
available to stream or download commercial-free. This podcast is also available on our YouTube channel, Jungian Laura. With special thanks to Scott Milligan and Liz Jefferson at Inner City Books, and in memory of Daryl Sharp, I'm Laura London, and you've been listening to Speaking of Jung. Music